Hello, I'm Oliver Colling, and this is my 70s TV childhood. Hello again, and welcome back to the safe space for those of us who grew up in Britain during the 1970s. A space where we can safely remember our childhoods, without being told how wonderful the 1960s were, or how difficult it is to grow up as a millennial. No, we restrict ourselves to memories of simpler, largely happy times, of childhood, and of course, the television programmes which, for many of us, were so important in our lives. As usual, I'd like to say a quick thank you to all those who've been in touch with memories or comments after previous episodes. Special thanks to those who put me right on things I may have misremembered or forgotten. I do try to work largely from memory, so it's inevitable I'll get things wrong. But I think that's part of the fun of reminiscence. How many of you have had family arguments about events from the past where every person involved has a different recollection of what did or didn't happen? I guess just about everybody listening has had that happen. Well, it's a natural phenomenon and part of how our brain stores and processes information. In its mildest form, it's known as confabulation, which, according to the expertise which is Wikipedia, is a memory error defined as the production of fabricated, distorted or misinterpreted memories about oneself or the world. People who confabulate present incorrect memories ranging from subtle alterations to bizarre fabrications and are generally very confident about their recollections despite all evidence to the contrary. Well I'd like to think I'm more in the subtle alteration frame rather than the bizarre fabrication category but you can see where it comes from and of course when we're talking about the 1970s it was a very long time ago. Now I don't know about you but I still feel very young so can't believe I'm somehow in my 50s and that my once dark head of hair is now a rather pleasing shade of silvery grey. But the thing I do enjoy about sharing your memories is that for a few moments we can all return to childhood, to that time of having few cares, playing outside for what seemed like hours, before retreating to watch limited but highly memorable TV shows. So bearing that in mind, I'd love to hear more about your memories. You can leave comments on our blog at www.my70stvchildhood.com, tweet at 70stvchildhood, or you can email me, oliver at my70stvchildhood.com. I really can't wait to hear from you. So, on to today's theme, which is ghosts. Now, a friend of mine persuaded me recently to start watching the newish BBC show called Ghosts. Okay, it's been on a few years now, but unlike the 1970s, there is so much to watch on TV and so little time. And as a result, I watched the first few episodes. For those who may not have seen it, the show revolves around a young couple, played by the wonderful Charlotte Ritchie and the admirable Keel Smith-Bino. And they inherit a an enormous old country house, 
and arrive to find it in disrepair and, unknown to them, full of ghosts of former inhabitants from across the centuries. These include plague victims, an army officer, uh, an MP with no trousers on, etc., etc. Well, and then after a near-death experience, Charlotte Rich's character is suddenly able to see and communicate with the ghosts, leading to all sorts of hilarious situations. You get the picture, I think. Well, having watched it, it was fine, and the great cast do really well. But I haven't watched any more episodes, and I've only just realised why. I feel like I've seen it all before, but only better. The show is either consciously or unconsciously based on two of my favourite programmes as a child, and so I've been comparing it against those. Now, perhaps there's a bit of confabulation going on here with my memories, but the modern ghosts can't compare to the two shows I'm thinking of, which are, of course, Rent-A-Ghost and The Ghosts of Motley Hall. Now, ghosts were pretty big in the 1970s on TV, as they still are today. We had all sorts of spooky dramas, some of which we've mentioned in previous episodes, featuring ghosts of all kinds, from the time-travelling ghostly tale of Thomas Midnight Garden to Kenneth Cope's chirpy ghost in Randall and Hopkirk Deceased. We also had lots of cartoon ghost shenanigans, not least from the great Scooby-Doo, and his rather pale imitators Goober and the Ghost Chasers. But then in 1976, both BBC and ITV decided that ghosts were going to be big that year and launched two very different shows, both of which are still fondly remembered today. If your mansion house needs haunting, just call Rent a ghost. We've got spooks and ghouls and freaks and fools. At Rent a Ghost, hear the phantom of the opera sing a haunting melody. Remember what you see is not a mystery, but Rent a Ghost. At your party, be a smarty and hire. Rent a Ghost. Rent a Ghost burst onto our scenes in January 1976 as part of the BBC's regular children's programming. From its opening title sequence, with its catchy theme tune, it was clear that this was something a bit different. The programme was created by Bob Block, who had a long history of writing for radio and TV, with some of the greatest names in British comedy and variety during the 1950s and 60s, including Arthur Askey, uh, thank you, uh, Frankie Howard, uh, I won't try and do an impression, and um, Ken Dodd, with whom he worked on the Ken Dodd and Diddy Men TV series. He then moved into writing for children's television shows and created Pardon My Genie and Robert's Robot. He also contributed to the scripts of other shows, including Crackerjack. Crackerjack! I hope you all joined in with that one. Uh, and unfortunately, the Clive Dunn post-dad's army vehicle, Grandad, which I personally despised. However, he's best known for Rent-A-Ghost, which... I remember it was a great hit right from the start. All the children in my class at school made sure they watched it, and we would happily discuss what had happened next morning. But why was this? Because for those who don't remember it, the premise didn't sound that amusing. The first few series of Rent-A-Ghost revolved around Fred Mumford, played by Anthony Jackson. 
a man who I would guess was in his late 20s or early 30s. But Fred had a problem. He was dead and had become a ghost. Not only that, his parents didn't know he was dead. I think he'd been killed in an accident somewhere abroad, which was seen in the 1970s as being roughly equivalent to being on Mars, so the news of his death obviously couldn't make it through to the United Kingdom. Now, if we take a step back, this seems a little bit dodgy for children's entertainment. Basing a comedy series around a man who was killed and whose ghost was now trying to persuade his parents that he was still alive, rather than allowing them to grieve for their dead child. In fact, I remember in what might have been the first episode, Fred, or Fred's ghost more more accurately, spent most of his time trying to persuade his parents to lend him the money to pay the rent on the Rent-A-Ghost office. Mm, There's a lot going on there, as they say nowadays. Fortunately, the show is extremely funny, so the moral dilemma of Fred and his parents didn't bother many children in the 1970s. Well, at least not this one. Anyway, back to the premise. Fred, now realising he was a ghost, had a fantastic idea for a business, providing ghosts for rental to the general public, hence the name Rent-A-Ghost. Does what it says on the tin. However, there were a couple of flaws with Fred's idea. Never mind the more obvious practical difficulties with getting a company bank account or public liability insurance, to which I was oblivious as a nine-year-old. Yes, the main flaw was that Fred was totally useless at absolutely everything he ever did. The other major flaw was that he was only able to persuade two other ghosts to come and work with him. The Victorian gent Hubert Davenport, played by Michael Derbyshire, and the medieval jester Timothy Claypole, played by Michael Staniforth, who at the time was a well-known stage musical performer. The plots were based around the ghosts trying to turn their hands to a new enterprise in every episode. Ones I remember particularly include running a taxi service, providing entertainment at children's parties, and house removals. Much of the comedy arose from the antics of Timothy Claypole, the jester who had a truly wicked sense of humour, but was also very literal in his actions, such as the time he helped Fred's parents move house by literally moving their house from one place to another. He was also quite at odds with the modern world, so lots of confusion with telephones and other modern-type gadgets. Mr Claypole was a smash hit with us children. He behaved and acted like a child, and also had most of the best lines from the show, with plenty of gadzooks and Ons bodkins thrown in for good measure. Mr Davenport, the third ghost, was a Victorian gentleman whose main power was a kind of feeble ineptness, He was, I seem to remember, awfully, awfully nice, but totally impractical. He was also haunted by his own mother, I seem to remember, whose ghost would turn up from time to time to berate him for being so useless. What a disappointment, she used to say. As well as the ghosts, further comic relief was provided by the spook's landlord, Mr Meacher, who was always hanging around trying to get his rent paid. Given the weekly failure with the business to ever make any money, this was a recurring theme. His wife, Ethel, also provided a few laughs. So why was it so popular? The show would run until 1984, and 58 episodes were produced, although I do treasure the first four series of being something original, different, and very funny. I think Bob Block simply used the same approach for kids' TV that he'd used with Arthur Askey, Frankie Howard and Ken Dodd, Uh, Perhaps even the same material, I might even guess. 
keep the jokes coming, fast and furious, engineer some comic scenarios, and have them executed by a talented, happy cast. What could go wrong with that? As I've just said, the first four series stood out for me. After the fourth series, Anthony Jackson quit to pursue other interests, and sadly, Michael Derbyshire, a.k.a. Mr. Davenport, died. From then on, the plot lines became even more out-and-out silliness, largely centred on Timothy Claypole, and brought in new characters, like the McWitch, played by Molly Weir, who we knew best from the Flash adverts, and Nadia Popoff, a.k.a. Sue Nichols, Gail Tills's mum, Audrey Roberts in Coronation Street. Oh, and they even had a ghost pantomime horse. Hmm. It just wasn't the same for me anymore. Or perhaps that might have had something more to do with my getting older. The Rent-A-Ghost office finally closed its doors in November 1984, by which point I had long left it behind. In a sad postscript, Michael Staniforth died only three years later, aged just 44, from an HIV-related illness. The memory of his character, Timothy Claypole, however, lives on, most notably in the theme tune, which Dennis Waterman-like, he wrote and sang, and which I guarantee will be going around in your head for the next few days. ITV didn't want to miss out on the ghostly trend, and they also launched a spectral-themed children's show in 1976, which again paid more than a passing resemblance to the recent BBC show I mentioned at the start of the episode. But in contrast to many of the shows conjured up by ITV, this one was clever, quite cerebral, and featured a who's who of great British actors. Importantly, though, it still managed to be very funny. Granada TV's Ghosts of Motley Hall was a real treat for me, which ran over three series and 20 episodes. It was unusual in that all of the action took place within the aforementioned Motley Hall and its grounds, and the main characters were the five ghosts who lived in, well, they were all confined to, the house. The property was a crumbling 16th century manor house, uninhabited since the death of the last of the Uproar family. 
The ghosts, who rather enjoyed having the house themselves, wanted it to stay that way, and much of the plot revolved around how they managed to keep humans away. There were five main ghosts. Bodkin, a jester, uh, yes, another one, played by the great Arthur English, who had died from a bad cold caused by his master having been thrown into a cold pond repeatedly for his amusement. Sheila Stiefel played the White Lady, who was a mysterious ghost who wandered the battlements and really couldn't remember anything at all about her life on Earth. Sir George Uproar, played by Freddie Jones, was a bluff ex-military type who died falling down the stairs of the hall and provided bluster and pomposity to proceedings. And the final two ghosts were Sir Francis Uproar, played by Nicholas Le Provost, who was an 18th century fop with a taste for drink and duels, both of which combined led to his untimely death, and Matt, Sean Flanagan, who was a stable lad at the hall. There was also a regular human character, Mr Gudgeon, the caretaker, played by the legendary Peter Sellis, who I seem to remember could see some of the ghosts some of the time, but I'm a bit patchy on that. There were lots of guest characters, some human, some ghostly, but the thing which stood out for me was how tightly it was performed by such a strong cast in what was effectively one set for most of the series. The characters were well-developed and had depth, and whilst they were generally sad to be dead, they took comfort in a quiet life, undisturbed at the hall. Many of the plots concerned moves to buy the property or to exercise the ghosts, all of which were ultimately foiled by the ghosts themselves, although I do remember in one episode that a scientist managed to seemingly destroy most of the ghosts, but they were saved, thanks to the ingenuity of Matt the Stable Lad. The series was written and created by Richard Carpenter, who also created The Wonderful Cat Weasel, Dick Turpin, starring Richard O'Sullivan, there's another name which crops up regularly in our episodes, and, in the 1980s, the ethereal Robin of Sherwood. He also wrote 17 episodes of The Adventures of Black Beauty, so all in all, a very classy writer. And it certainly shows in the programmes. They were well-written, funny, without going too far down the silliness of Rent-A-Ghost, and provoked genuine concern and emotion. We really cared about the ghosts and what happened to them, and ended up rooting for them to be able to carry on living out the rest of eternity in the crumbling wreck of Motley Hall, free from human interference. I haven't seen anything of the Ghosts of Motley Hall since it was repeated on Sunday afternoons in about 1979 or 1980. But having thought about it for this episode, I think I'm going to invest in one of the DVDs of the series and see if it still has the power it had over me as a nine-year-old. Once I have, I'll let you know how it goes. I might also sneak a peek at pre-pantomime horse silliness Rent-A-Ghost and see whether that stood the test of time. Did you laugh at Mr. Claypole at Al's adventures on Rent-A-Ghost? Or did you prefer the gentler, more cerebral delights of the ghosts of Motley Hall? Let me know on our blog at www.my70stvchildhood.com Tweet me at 70stvchildhood Or you can email me direct, oliver at my70stvchildhood.com Well, that's all for now. 
I hope you've enjoyed going back to ghostly programs of the 70s, and that I haven't put you off the BBC's current ghost show. I'm sure it's great, but for me, it doesn't compare to those from our childhood. Take care, and hope to see you again soon for more from my 70s TV childhood. enjoyed listening you can support the show by going to my patreon site at www.patreon.com forward slash oliver colling and registering as a supporter for two pounds a month you can join the tufty club get a shout out on the show and have bernard cribbins narrate as you cross the road for five pounds a month you can become a blue peter badge member get a shout out appear as an interviewee on a future episode and get to dance in the young generation with Leslie Judd. All memberships are fully flexible and can be cancelled at any time. Your help is much appreciated. <laughs>